This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. What's old is new again in education. Yale University wants to reincorporate standardized tests in their admission process. Standardized tests are fairly common outside of Canada. Think things like the SAT tests in the U.S. Some colleges and universities want that process to be utilized more here. Elizabeth Moeller is an academic, and Elizabeth is also the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Dave. Alec, uh, I, Elizabeth, I know you touched on this a few weeks ago in a slightly different conversation, but how do you feel about standardized tests as part of the post-secondary admission process? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's some concerns, you know, certainly when I think about equity, um, you know, socioeconomic barriers, barriers to even getting to a test center, uh, accessibility barriers. I did have to take a standardized test for a program I applied to, and I, I wasn't able to receive accommodations. So I think, you know, from that perspective, I have concerns. I think your question's an interesting one, though. A part of the process, I think, there could be um, certainly some, uh, you know, merit to that as long as it's a part and there's other factors that are weighted and considered. Mm. I also, I also kind of think about like, and I don't know what your thoughts are around like, what are we trying to achieve? Like, when you think about like the essential requirements of a program, what does a standardized test tell us that you're a good test taker, that you can work under pressure, that you read and write and can critically think well? And then I think about like how much of that or all of that are we looking for in, a, in an applicant and are there other areas we also need to wait? Yeah, I, I think that's where I land. That certainly can be part of the process. I can see the merit as being part of the process. I did a PSAT when I was in high school, just for the heck of it. They said, hey, why not? You know, maybe you are going to go to school in the States and you might want to get experienced writing one of these things. And I did really poorly. I did really poorly because it wasn't how I like to communicate or learn or test. Mm. I'm someone mm. who likes to give out thoughtful answers, not multiple choice answers to sort of bizarre questions. Amen. And and I, I but you know, but that but that speaks to who I am rather than necessarily what universities or colleges are looking for. And Elizabeth, I like what you flagged there in regard to as you went through your academic process, you did still encounter standardized testing. It's not totally mm -hmm. foreign in Canada, but no. typically it lands closer to the grad school or professional yes. school uh, side of things, right? Like the 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 LSAT tests for LSAT LSAT tests for lawyers. I swear I'm a professional broadcaster. I can talk <laughs> or the or, or the MCATs for prospective medical students. There is still some standardized testing, but it's typically one layer further down the line in the academic process. Yeah, absolutely. And and the program, I it was a professional program. And I think that was an interesting one because, and this was quite a while back, it was that in your transcript. So a lot sort of wrote on that. And I was actually doing a little bit of research for today. And I was looking at a, an institution in um, Ontario here, McMaster, and they their medical school application process is quite holistic. So they look at lots of other attributes because, you know, being a doctor, you need things like interpersonal skills and empathy and problem solving. Um, and so I think 
that that's and that's a part of a committee that I've been doing some work on at Western is revamping the admissions process to be more holistic. So having things like options for people to do a video interview or an essay, um, you know, in the transcript and the test tell one part of that person's story, but. It, they don't tell the whole part of that story. And so I think where, I, we, where we're both landing is I'm fine with it being a part of it. I'm even seeing some programs have an optional. So if you want to submit a test score, you can. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that and that might be great for somebody who didn't do well and their transcript doesn't show their whole story. So I think, you know, I think there's a place for it for sure. But I think how it's administered and looking at essential course and program requirements is really important. Just a little bit more uh, to pull from here from the real world. Some provinces already have standardized criteria when it comes to high school year end mm -hmm. exams. For example, in Quebec, uh, they use them for language, math, history. I did really well on the history test. I got the top score in the province. How, it's a little humble brag there. How could those existing models mesh <laughs> with a push for more specific specific post-secondary standardized test using what is already in place to potentially connect to the next level of academia. Well, first of all, I want you on my trivia team. I love a good game of Canadian <laughs> trivia. Oh, I'm, I am an excellent <laughs> pub trivia player. Okay, well, we'll talk. Um, I think, you know, so in Ontario here, we have the grade 10 literacy test. And I think that that, first of all, it's a good benchmark to flag where you're at. So if there are problems and you're thinking about post-secondary, you can address those. But I think also, you know, using some of those scores as, again, um, potential bridging to connect you to programs that might be interested. So maybe you did really well in history. Um, so that could sort of flag programs of interest. It also might help, um, you know, to be a part of the application process or even a part of, you know, kind of your career coaching that you're getting in high school. So I think using those as benchmarks is really helpful just to see, especially in the grade like 10, 11, like where am I at and where do I need to sort of do the work to get where I want to go next? Elizabeth, one of the reasons why advocates at the academic level are pushing for more standardized testing before getting into university and college is because research shows that most first-year university students do experience a slide in their grades from where they were in high school. Why do you think that is? Is that standardized tests or is that keg stands? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there's a lot of different... <laughs> Sorry. I think there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, I, you know, we have something uh, that I was a part of developing called Uni 101, You for You. Um, yes, the name is a little bit pokey, but it really looks at like the grades are going to drop. So first of all, like people are doing work more independently. Um, you're doing like three hours of work outside of the classroom for every one hour in the classroom. So like in high school, at least when I was in high school, you did a lot of your work in high school yeah, and yeah. you wanted to get it done so you could, you know, go off and do whatever. But um, I think that that's a really big change. And I think just the, the expectations and, you know, there is, you know, conversations around grade, grade inflation, um, changing expectations. And also, like, sometimes people go to university or college or trade school and they're not, it's not actually what they're interested in. They're just doing it because a guidance counselor mm, or parents suggested mm. it. So then you're getting into that whole thing, right? So I think there's a lot of different factors. I, I do think if I reflect back on my experience, even as a fossilizing human over here, uh, when I started at McGill in 2003, I just felt totally unoriented into the place. Yeah. Like orientation was like, here's a school bag and here's why a university is great rather than, hey, here's some like, really helpful. Like, yeah, well, yeah, like as opposed to here's some really uh, useful stuff about how to navigate the library and what you need to yeah. do to access student, cer student certain student services. I 
I really felt like the orientation process was just not tailored at all all for a student rather than an advertisement for the university when I've already given you my tuition money. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, I think about my first experience and I just remember like as a student with a disability, I had what was called an individualized education plan. And then all of a sudden in university, you're figuring all this out and like who walks you through that and how do you figure out even what you need? How do you know what you don't know? Um, so that was a really big piece for me. I totally agree with you. I was, I completely, my first year, I was completely lost. I'm surprised I passed. <laughs> my first year was actually <laughs> one of the better years on my transcripts, but again, no, 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 well, it's kind of alphabet soupy. Uh, no, no okay. need to go too too far down that road. Elizabeth, okay, I, I want to take this back a few grades, but maybe into a broader question. The province of Ontario wants to go back to some more traditional approaches when it comes to reading and math. On the reading front, it's going back to the actual ABCs of phonics-based learning. It feels like education has modernized a bit over the last few decades, but if you take this conversation that we're having about standardized tests or this phonics-based learning conversation that reporter Megan Gilmore wrote about extensively in Canadian Affairs and unpacked a little bit on the show last week, does it feel like what's old is new again in education? You're right. Like sometimes I feel like I have the same conversations and I, I started my undergrad in 2005. Um, or, and I think, well, you know, like, didn't we have this conversation about, you know, an accommodation or in this case, phonics or testing or, you know, solutions to barriers that we're facing. And it, it does sort of feel like these things sort of all coil around each other. Um, I, I think there's honestly, like I learned through phonics, how to read. I, I have this vision of like conjunction junction running through my head. <laughs> I'm dating myself, but I, yeah, I do feel like that. And I feel like it, especially in the disability and accommodations world where the solutions were coming up with, I'm like, but we talked about those 20 years ago. So it does feel a lot to me. Like what's old is new. Mm. Hey, Elizabeth, thank you for your perspective on this. I always appreciate walking through the halls of academia with you. It connects me to an old life of mine. All right. Well, I always like to walk them with you too, Dave. <laughs> That's Elizabeth Moeller, the founder of EM Disability Consulting. In 60 seconds, Laura Bain has the latest news in entertainment. But first, a big change is coming to the video game world. Mike Dubusky has the story in Tech Trends. For the first time, games developed exclusively for the Xbox are going to be available on a competitor's console, the Nintendo Switch. It was Obsidian Games' two titles, uh, Grounded and Pentiment. IGN's Taylor Lyle says it comes after Xbox owner Microsoft acquired developer Activision Blizzard and drew concerns Microsoft had consolidated too much power in the gaming industry. There was a whole issue of that being anti-competitive given how big of a publisher Activision Blizzard was. Other Xbox exclusives are also headed to PlayStation devices, but Lyle says this doesn't mean that all games will soon be interoperable. When you look at games like Hi-Fi Rush, which has like a cel-shaded graphic, but it's very fast-paced, it's running, I believe, at 60 frames per second, and you look at a game like Sea of Thieves, I, I couldn't see those games running on the Switch. I I'm sure they probably, I'm sure they maybe wanted to put those games on the Switch, but just couldn't because of the hardware limitations. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. There is a lot lot of conversation in the video game world about the death of the console and just finding software-based solutions. Very interesting stuff. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
Turning to the world of entertainment, not that video games aren't entertainment, new research shows that gender parity in the film industry is not improving particularly quickly in Canada. Laura Bain, what's the story here? A oh. new study came—can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Sorry. Okay. Um, so uh, this is talking about a new study called Reframing the Picture, which looked at uh, the impact of gender equity policies on the film industry in Canada, the UK and Germany. And unfortunately, it does not paint a good picture. It found that although there are some improvements happening at that current rate of improvement, Canada will reach gender parity in the film industry in the year 2215 or 191 years from now. Uh, the UK and Germany did do a bit better, so uh, reaching parity by 2085 in the UK and 2041 in Germany. Oh, that's pretty good. Mm, yeah, I thought so too. Uh, the office def definitely uh, Canada is way behind. <laughs> I guess I guess it's a matter of relativity that that's shifting the Overton window. Like, oh yeah, 2041. That's only 17 years away. <laughs> Yeah. So the author, the authors emphasize that change really needs to happen, not just broadly, but sort of in specific areas to change the culture in the industry. Uh, so, for example, in Can in Canada, we have uh, seventy eight percent of men occupying key, key creative positions, and in elite network positions in Canada, it's eighty two percent male. Mm. And now, of course, you know we can't talk about this without really talking about the U.S. I think because that is such a large industry compared to Canada. But uh, this study didn't look at that. But just to give an idea of numbers from a different study, um, it's going to take the U.S. 175 years to reach gender parity specifically amongst uh, film directors. So also not a good picture down there, not surprisingly at all. Now, this report called for stronger gender equity policies uh, and accountability measures and incentives. I'm definitely interested to get your thoughts on that. But something that I thought was kind of interesting that was identified in this report is that if you're just looking at the sheer number of women and gender minorities in the film industry, improvements that you're seeing, like just in the numbers, not the percentages, are coming largely due to the expansion of the industry overall and mm, not due mm -hmm. to the displacement of men and honestly i have to say dave that if i feel any level of optimism i think it's there is in the broadening of the platform uh rather than in sort of gender equity uh uh policies although i do think that broadening the platform is not going to make a difference when you're talking about those large uh production companies and kind of big players but what are your thoughts on kind of this report I'm right there with you in regards to the democratization of distribution of media. Like, that really does matter, but it's small potatoes when you consider who holds the power at major studios and networks. If you look at uh, most of the big studios and networks in the United States, it's just some older white dude in his 70s. And for a long time, as Hollywood was flourishing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, 80s, in a lot of cases, yes, there was some old money production going on. There was old money producers, but the industry was young. And what's happened mm -hmm. is there's not been a significant enough 
turnover at the top of the industry. Because Laura, if you were making $25 million a year, how likely are you to walk away from that gig or just keep padding cash in your pockets? So the glass ceiling exists not just from an equity point of view, but from literally an older generation hanging on to positions of power and not allowing that upward mobility anywhere than, say, middle management. Yeah, and I think you're right to kind of identify, you know, um, it has to be a financial pain point. And right now there aren't any financial pain points. And just thinking myself, I'm certainly not an expert in this area of how you would generate those. You can, you know, look at things like film festivals, having uh, gender equity uh, criteria and, uh, you know, governments that have film incentive uh, credits, having those policies. But I think it is very difficult sort of at the top, those big studios to unfortunately create pain points i don't i don't mean to paint a grim picture and of course you know i i think that it's important that we not just talk about gender equity but also about intersectionality oh yeah um so are we seeing you know people of color are we seeing people with disabilities and uh lgbtq folks is all very important but uh yeah it seems like it's an industry that is a little bit uh has gotten perhaps a little bit stagnant as you've identified. Yeah. I, listen, I'm pessimistic generally about it because I think where money lies, lies power and power creates culture. And that and that makes me deeply pessimistic. I will say that growth can occur exponentially if there is a ladder in place, if there is a mm -hmm. pathway in place. But if there is no pathway and all the glass steel ceilings stay where they are, it doesn't matter how much you end up creating at the lowest possible levels if you don't give people the opportunity to grow in the industry. And that's become one of the big stagnation points inside the entertainment industry right now, which, by the way, is going through its own sort of collapse on the fringes here anyway. You see big studio flop after big studio studio flop, uh, films that cost $200 million to make, $200 million to market, and then they make $80 million at the cinema. You know, the, the, the industry is facing its own pressures here that maybe mm -hmm. it got a little too big for its own britches, generally speaking. Well, I will pick up on the optimism about that exponential growth that can happen when you get people into key positions for a number of reasons, you know, one of them even being mentorship. And I always think that it's important to address it at the top, but also sort of at the entry level and what's happening in terms of incentivizing underrepresented groups to get into uh, film and television, uh, university and college mm -hmm, programs. Mm -hmm. um, because I think when we look at uh, people with disabilities, that's where we've seen, you know, like there are people like myself working in the industry who don't have that background. But I have to say that at the time when I was considering my options out of high school, it really was not accessible to me. And I have yeah. to imagine that those barriers are there for uh, lots of other folks underrepresented in the industry trying to get in. So I think bringing people in at the ground level, uh, education, mentorship, apprenticeships, mm -hmm. and then also kind of at the top where they have the power to kind of actually create change. From point A to point Z, all the way through. Laura, thank you for this. Always nice chatting with you. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, Quebec's new language laws are creating consumer and business concerns. That story will be featured in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.